One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Since its foundation in 1660, the Royal Society has encouraged us to raise our eyes to the skies. Scientists associated with this institution, a neighbour to Buckingham Palace here in central London, help discover new truths about the planets on which we've always gazed in wonder. Sir Isaac Newton, president of the Royal Society in the early 1700s, developed a mathematical formulation that explained the movement of celestial bodies. And as new discoveries regularly fueled our imagination of other worlds and other life forms, the Society has hosted events discussing that most gripping of questions, is there anybody out there? Only three years ago, this grand cream stucco building saw the announcement of a private investment of $100 million dedicated to the search for intelligent extraterrestrial life. And in the US, Congress is currently, for the first time in a quarter of a century, considering granting funding to NASA for very similar research. It's something every one of these passing commuters and tourists on London's famous Mall. Every Sunday, the staring at the blue skies above St James's Park opposite me will have contemplated, knowing that we're ants, all of us, on a tiny earth viewed from space. Are we alone? That's the subject of this week's The Real Story here on the BBC World Service. And back in our studio, a couple of miles from here, will be some eminent experts on the search for the real ET to help us ponder that question. Well, welcome to the studio. My name's Paul Henley, and joining me are Dr Neil Bowles, who's a lecturer in physics at the University of Oxford, and from the United States, Dr Penny Boston, who is director of NASA's Astrobiology Institute, Dr Lisa Kaltenegger, an associate professor of astronomy at Cornell University, and Dr Andrew Simeon, who is the director of the SETI Research Centre at Berkeley, SETI being the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Welcome all. Can I ask you first, on what odds you are betting, essentially, a substantial part of your professional lives? In other words, how confident are you that extraterrestrial life does exist, as a percentage, maybe, starting with Andrew? Well, I would say that I'm 100% confident that uh, extraterrestrial life exists. I would say I'm less confident that I'll detect it uh, in, in my lifetime, maybe uh, a part in 10,000. And Lisa, are we just talking some sort of single cell existence or a fully blown thinking alien being, perhaps? I like a kind of cheeky answer to that. What I'm telling you is that the chances of life out there are 50% plus minus 50. And it's up to us to figure out what it really is, because it could be anywhere or everywhere or nowhere. And that is the question of a century and the question of a lifetime. So an even bet for you. Dr. Penny Boston. Well, 100%. It's somewhere. The question really boils down to how do we look for it and how do we find it and what are we aiming at? So on my end of the spectrum, I'm looking for microbial life personally. But as a community, we're looking for everything from microbes to little guys that can maybe communicate with us in some fashion. So it's a very broad spectrum that we're trying to tackle. And Dr. Neil Bowles, are you confident of finding the real ET, as it were? 
the real et or and not so sure about with uh, sort of that sort of level of intelligence and sophisticated technology but i think i probably sort of split the difference between andrew and lisa and probably with about 75 percent i think with a big error bar as we'd like to say because i think the probability of there being small microbial life is probably quite high because it certainly seems to have got started on earth pretty early in our history of the planet but more sophisticated technology, you know, technological civilizations is probably a lot lower. What about the dimensions of the question of whether there's life beyond our planet? Our, gal- our galaxy, the Milky Way, has some 250 billion stars. A lot of those stars have planets around them. And as I mentioned, many could be Earth-like. How do we explore them? We can't go there, Andrew Simeon, can we? No, at least for the moment, we can't. Uh, we're confined to our, our solar system and where we can can travel. But of course, we can study these other planets with telescopes, uh, optical telescopes, and uh, in, in what we do in, in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, radio telescopes. And we can observe these planets very, very carefully, these other stars very carefully, and look for any signs of, of life, be it basic forms of life or more advanced forms of life, life like we do in SETI. And Penny, this $10 million that Congress is currently considering granting to NASA how far does that go? I'm guessing not very far. What does it buy you? A telescope time? Ten million sounds like a lot of money in a personal perspective, but science is expensive and we're trying to do something very difficult. So it would not buy you a mission, for example. It might buy you the time of clever people to work on the project and perhaps some instruments that could go along on various missions that are already planned by NASA or other other space agencies around the world. $10 million can be leveraged, though, and uh, that leveraging process, I think, is really important. And the buy-in, really, from the global community that this is an enterprise of humanity, that we all have a stake in the consequences of finding anything from intelligent life to the microbial life that seems to be on the, the early and more simple end of the spectrum. So all comers are welcome, all, all uh, approaches are welcome, because really we are untutored and we are really just at the, um, the doorstep of this amazing era of looking for life in all of its forms. And Lisa, you're an astronomer. How much can you actually see by looking through the lens of an extremely sophisticated telescope at a, a distant star and the planets that surround it? Can, can you see atmospheres? What visual clues are there? Oh, absolutely. That's basically the add-on to what Ender was saying. He was saying that we can already look. And how we do that is light travels the universe for free. And so the only thing, in a way, we have to do is catch it. Because if light passes through the atmosphere of another world that could potentially be like ours, it will hit the molecules in its path before it gets to my telescope. And if it hits such molecules, what it will do is it will actually excite them to rotate or swing. So it won't get to me. So by what's missing in the light that I detect in my telescope from the light that should be there, that's what tells me what's the chemical makeup of the air of another world. And we can do it right now for these big gaseous planets, even bigger than Jupiter. But we are right now building the telescopes. They're going to be bigger, so they are sensitive enough to do the same thing for small worlds like ours. Because if you put the Earth a hundred times next to each other, that's the diameter of the sun. 
if you put Jupiter 10 times next to each other, that's the diameter of the sun. So what it just means is that these Jupiter planets are so much bigger. So we can do it right now for them. But to do it for the small Earth-like planets where something might breathe, that we see with this technique of catching the light, we need the bigger telescopes, the James Webb Space Telescope we're building here in the U.S. And also in Chile, we're building a 40-meter telescope on the ground, the European Extremely Large Telescopes. And these two telescopes are our next best chance to actually be able to spot signs of life in the air of another world. And excitingly, I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice, Lisa. Dr. Neil Bowles, you have to be fired by that sort of enthusiasm to dedicate your your working life to this, I presume, do you? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, this is very much a a thing that you're in the long game for. I mean, I think uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is a good example. I mean, that was being talked about around the time, even just before the the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, our current, the sort of well-known observatory in orbit around the Earth was being talked about. They were talking about the next generation of, of telescope that was becoming, it was called the Next Generation Space Telescope, in fact, back in those days before it became the James Webb Space Telescope. It's worth the effort of trying to get these very complicated and difficult instruments into space where we can get them into a very quiet environment to do these incredibly precise measurements that we need to do that Lisa was talking about. So you are literally going to dedicate at least... 10 to 20 years of your life potentially on these kind of questions. Sorry, Paul, this is Lisa. You were asking us about, you know, what we think the chances are. Hmm. And we all have our personal opinion or we wouldn't be in this game. But uh, you said it's about 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And we know from our research that one out of five of those stars, those other suns, have a planet that could be like ours. So... If you take that, you have 40 billion potential Earths out there. And even if life is really hard to make or to get going, I like our chances. And I think that's what you see with everybody around us, that we are enthusiastic, but we also in it for the long run. As you said, we're still using Isaac Newton's work. We're using Kepler's work. We're a small piece in this big, big adventure of finding out whether we're alone in the universe But we have the chance that in our generation, it is the time that we'll figure it out. And Andrew, we're talking about these great chances and these great possibilities. To what extent would your enthusiasm be rewarded by finding microbial life on a distant planet that possibly uses oxygen uh, that is so simple? When, When your career is dedicated to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, tell me how much of a disappointment it would be to find something monocellular? Well, it wouldn't be a disappointment at all. In fact, that would be, uh, in, in my view, the most significant discovery in the history of, of human inquiry into the, into the physical world, into the, the natural world. And in particular... It couldn't uh, be termed it, extraterrestrial not, intelligence, or could it? Of course, it's very difficult for us to define intelligence. So if we detected some form of life, uh, perhaps in this uh, method that, that Lisa spoke about involving looking for uh, a particular kind of chemistry in the atmosphere of a, another exoplanet, we wouldn't really know anything about the life itself. It, it might be intelligent. It, it might be very, very simple life. But uh, this is the, the interesting thing about the statistics of one. As, as Lisa said, we only know of one example of life anywhere in, in the universe, and that makes it very, very difficult for us to extrapolate to the rest of the universe and and to calculate how much life there might be. But if we were to detect just one more example, and and in particular uh, what we call an independent genesis uh, of of life, 
not perhaps life in our own solar system that maybe came from the same genesis as life on Earth, but life in, in another system uh, that was the very different uh, from the life we have here on Earth. That would tell us that, that life is, is very, very common. And of course, that would uh, very much sharpen the edge of, of the question that I think many people, particularly the public, asks themselves when they think about life beyond the Earth. Is there any life out there that we could, that we could talk to, uh, that we could communicate with, potentially that we could uh, ask questions to and learn from. And of course, that's the very particular question that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence asks. Yes, and Neil Bowles, we base a lot in our search on this assumption that there was a single event here on Earth that created all life and that everything evolved from that first form of life. Perhaps an exciting discovery would be here on Earth an alternative form of life that didn't perhaps rely on water or oxygen or carbon dioxide that came from another great event. That would give us a clue as to what else to look for in the universe, wouldn't it? It could do. And I mean, there have been, you know, people do consider the possibility of different types of chemistry and biology that would make that possible. On the Earth, though, it's possible, of course, that we had more than one genesis of what we would consider to be life, you know, depending on your definition of, of life, which is a, an, a, an interesting point to consider as well. And of course, it could just be that through processes like natural selection, the biology that we see around us, the dominant sort of carbon-based biology that we have, was the one that just sort of outcompeted everything because it was the easiest to get going, or for whatever reason, it was just just got some advantage from that. But I mean, I think there are always attempts to try and find alternative biologies, if you like. I think the Earth is probably a difficult place to find them because the sort of like carbon water-based life that we have, what we're all familiar with, is so ubiquitous. One of the most ex exciting things, though, that opened up, you know, the sort of field significantly, of course, was discovering that even the sort of life that we're familiar with, based on the, the chemistry that we know, is found in so many very difficult and extreme environments in places that you just wouldn't previously have expected to have found life. You know, the deep sea oceans around you know, hydrothermal vents where it's incredibly hot. You can find evidence just close to those of viable ecosystems. There's places in the, high, in the deserts where it's very dry, but just clinging on to the edge of life, you find you know, single cellular organisms whenever there's water or there's some kind of energy gradient for them to exploit. So there's some method of producing it. But in terms of using the Earth to look for alternative biology, I think it's tricky because you'd need to have a really good idea of where to look and it would and it hadn't been contaminated or essentially outcompeted by the stuff that we understand already. Penny Boston from NASA, have we actually given up already on the idea of life on Mars, one of, one of the nearest possibilities? Oh, absolutely not. Um, one of the things that I think is really important to recognise is that we have a somewhat different set of tasks when we are looking for life elsewhere in our solar system than um, our colleagues who are investigating planets around other stars have. We have very different kinds of access to the materials, but we also can interrogate solar system bodies that we currently don't have any way to look at in other systems. So Lisa and the others were talking about, you know, looking for Earth-like planets, which is our, our best immediate hope for looking far beyond our own solar system. But in our own solar system, we have planets that um, I think of as type two potential biospheres, which is, you know, I think of Earth as a type one biosphere where we wear our sleeve uh, very clearly with the life signs on it. 
But for example, if Mars has life or ever had life, it's cryptic, it's hiding, it's hidden. Maybe it's in the long past, or maybe it's deep underground. And so those kinds of bodies would not give an obvious signal on the surface. And yet, because we are in the same solar system, we can develop missions to actually go in and, and look for that life. And, uh, and we're in the process, of course, doing that. It's a very long and painful and expensive process. Other examples in our solar system that are attracting a huge amount of attention are icy moons. And these are not just any old icy moon. These are icy moons around Jupiter and Saturn that appear to have liquid interiors and some kind of interior heating uh, that allows that water to be liquid and presumably geological sources of energy, which even though our planet here is driven mostly by sunlight, but we have many subsurface life forms that are driven by inorganic chemical energy. And so on our planet, they're a minor sideshow. But um, on these other bodies, they may be the major part of the play. And so if we can characterize those and find a second set of life forms in our own solar system, that would be a magnificent achievement too. It depends on whether or not that life appears to be related to life on Earth, in which case, as was said before, that would be evidence of life spreading through a solar system, but from a single genesis. But if that life is significantly different, or in a location, for example, the interior of Europa, the, the icy liquid interior moon around Jupiter, then we would have evidence that it had happened more than once in our very own solar system. And to me, that would be a clear signpost saying that if it's happened more than once in a given solar system, namely ours, that you could extrapolate that it is not that hard to do, so to speak, from the point of view of uh, planetary scale objects and that you would find it elsewhere in our galaxy. You're listening to The Real Story from the BBC World Service. And today we're asking the question, is there anybody out there or perhaps more specifically, any living thing out there? A question that's fascinated humankind well, forever, really. Can I put an ethical question to you? Lisa Kaltenegger, who's an, uh, an astronomer from Cornell University in the States. Uh, if we do find life somewhere out there, do we have a moral duty to leave it alone? I actually think this is a question that we are asking ourselves a lot. And even so, it sounds weird, maybe. It's actually quite comforting that these planets are very far away. Because if we could reach it right now, I wouldn't be the person, and Penny wouldn't be the person, you know, we wouldn't be the persons who could choose who gets to go. And that has been played with a lot in the movies, but there would be fear, there might be military that's going. And so what are we doing to this other life? Really, that would be the question we'd have to ask ourselves. As you said, we have an ethical obligation not to destroy their environment, not to bring our bacteria, if it works at all, you know, to this other place. However, because we are using light that can travel the vast distances of the universe, we can actually get to observe, we can get to learn. And during that time, hopefully we as a human species get to evolve to a better path of interaction if we ever do. Again, it's and the long I game we're talking about, isn't it? 
It's the long game in terms of actually getting there. <laughs> However, I think uh, one other thing that is very, very exciting in this whole search is that you were talking about our planet, our beautiful pale blue dot, and we need to safeguard it. That's another ethical obligation we do have to ourselves and our future and the future generations. By looking at other worlds out there, we will find some Earths that are older than ours, some that are younger, because stars have different ages. And so if we do that, then we actually get a first glimpse into a potential future of an Earth like our own planet. And I think that will again hopefully help us to safeguard our own planet better. Neil Bowles in Oxford. Lisa makes the point that if the scientists do scientists like you discover extraterrestrial life, you won't be the ones making the decision on what to do with it, whether to communicate, whether to interfere in some way. Do you, do you fear the actions of those who will make those decisions? Don't know. I think it very much depends on the type of life that's discovered. I mean, I think to a certain extent, we're already considering these kind of issues. Um, there are internationally agreed rules on what you do to send things to potentially viable habitats. So for a, the last couple of years, or at least three or four years, there's actually been one room in our lab where we build space instrumentation here in Oxford that I haven't been able to go in because I'm not cleared for the planetary protection reasons, as we call <laughs> it. And planetary protection is something that sounds a bit strange. It sounds like, you know, we're defending ourselves against aliens. In actual fact, it's a set of techniques that we use to guarantee that we're not taking life from Earth to other places like Mars. So because we've been building, helping to build one of the instruments that's on NASA's InSight Mars lander, which is going to land on Mars in November, that's going to the surface of Mars. So we have to have constant monitoring of what's going on and the people who go in and out of the room and all the equipment and the things that we're going to send, which are on the way to Mars right now. We have to actually constantly check those to make sure we know exactly how much bio burden we've sent and make sure it's all sterile before it goes to the planet. This is the reason why we crashed the Cassini, well, burnt up the Cassini spacecraft into the atmosphere of Saturn. The spacecraft was very, very successful. It had been orbiting Saturn since 2004, done a huge range of measurements, but was running out of fuel. And one of its kind of huge landmark discoveries were these huge erupting geysers at the south pole of one of the moons called Enceladus. This is along the lines that, that Penny was talking about as a potential habitat. And because the planet, because the spacecraft, Cassini, sorry, had not been sterilized before it left Earth, it was probably pretty sterile by being in space for so long, it was decided, you know, rather than just let it float around in the Saturn system, let's get lots of data by closing in closer and closer to the planet Saturn and eventually destroying the spacecraft in the atmos upper atmosphere because it had run out of fuel to prevent any risk at all of it forward contaminating other objects you know in the saturn system so these are things that we're already sort of thinking about in terms of do i worry about the sort of protocol for making an announcement i don't know i think it's one of those big cultural realignment moments which we have to think about i mean the decisions will be made by politicians hopefully with the assistance of scientists ethicists and philosophers it's certainly something that's been thought about i'm not sure what the other people's thoughts on this are I, i've come at it from a very practical point of view of you know, making sure everything's swabbed down <laughs> before sending it to Mars. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, we're looking at the search for extraterrestrial life. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. 
You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's go back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Paul Henley, looking at the search for extraterrestrial life. And my guests, Andrew Simeon, who is director of the SETI Research Centre at Berkeley, that's SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Dr Penny Boston, who is director of NASA's Astrobiology Institute. Dr Lisa Kaltenegger, director of the Carl Sagan Institute at Cornell University. And from Oxford here in the UK, I'm joined by Dr Neil Bowles, who's a lecturer in physics at the University of Oxford. I'm surrounded by so much scientific preeminence because this week we are looking into the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Now, you can't look into the search for extraterrestrial life for long before bumping into something called the Drake Equation. Basically, it's an attempt to estimate the number of technologically sophisticated cultures in our galaxy. Andrew, do you want to start us with this? What is the Drake Equation? Sure. Well, the Drake Equation is said to be the the second most well-known equation in science just after Albert Einstein's E equals MC squared. But to be honest, it's, it's less of an equation and more of a thought experiment. Basically, this uh, equation expresses the number of intelligent civilizations that we might eventually be able to communicate with as the product of the factors that we think would go into the emergence of that civilization. So the first term is the rate that stars form uh, in, the, in the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, the second term is the fraction of those stars that have planetary systems. And the, the next term, the fraction of those planetary systems uh, that have, have an Earth-like planet. And the, the equation goes on to include the, the various factors that we think would go into the, the emergence of, of intelligent life. But I think the most interesting term in the equation is actually the last term, which you might not um, at first glance expect you would find in the equation, which is L the length of time that a civilization lasts. And in fact, we think the most important factor in determining the number of civilizations that we might eventually be able to, to communicate with or perhaps even detect is the length of time uh, that those civilizations last and in particular the length of time that that technological phase in their evolution, the length of time that they have technology lasts. And if we, we look at our own planet, uh, as, as Lisa mentioned in the last last half hour, we, we see evidence that protecting a, a technological civilization and, and allowing it to last for, for a long period of time is not an easy thing to do. Uh, and there are many perils that the technological civilizations face. And that could be the, the most important term, actually, in, in the cosmic context uh, as to how many of these civilizations might actually exist. Yes, and Penny Boston from NASA, many have claimed that we haven't found extraterrestrial life yet because intelligent life, including us, always annihilates itself before it can successfully develop the technology for interstellar travel or communication. Cause for pessimism, surely. You know, I think that that's based on what I think of as a red herring, which is known as the Fermi paradox. Um, the great physicist Fermi basically was quoted as saying, well, if they're uh, so much intelligent life in the universe, where are they? And I think that that's a cute quip, but 
it glosses over the stupefying hugeness of our galaxy. Well, the argument goes that they ought to have colonized the entire galaxy by now. So, where are they? Well, it seems sensible. Yeah, I mean, that's based on the idea that all life forms are going to want to colonize the galaxy. I think that that's rather naive. I mean, that may be the state at which we find ourselves in our current very early development as an intelligent species, but it may be that the distances make that impractical. Perhaps they have other ways of communicating. Perhaps they don't want to physically visit other places. So I think that there's a huge bag of things that we don't know either about ourselves and certainly can't easily infer about other life forms. And in fact, for all we know, we're at the early stage of the era of intelligent uh, species and technological communicators. We don't really know. I hope that's not true because I think that we have a lot of work in front of us to actually look for them. But I think that the breadth of the task that we're about for looking for life on either end of the spectrum is enormous. And I think it's very impatient and perhaps immature of us as a species to expect that within 50, 60, maybe even several hundred years of uh, starting the search, it would be already successful. That's an so interesting question on all sorts of levels. How mature are we as a species? Dr. Lisa Kaltenegger. Well, perhaps. <laughs> Dr. Lisa Kaltenegger, let's address this, this central problem of communication and I mentioned earlier that if we did find a radio signal from the far side of the Milky Way it would already be a hundred thousand years old not much chance of a conversation then I don't worry so much about the conversation because I completely agree with Andrew and other people that if a signal were to come and we could actually identify it as being artificial, so basically from another intelligence, that would be amazing. However, I think what is even more interesting in this whole question about communication that you brought up is like, we basically, and I, I think it's a little naive in a way, assume that when the message will come, if one comes, we would just able to understand it. Because I usually, when I teach this in class, I say, try to talk with a jellyfish. You can see it. You can actually, it evolved on your planet with carbon and water and basically the same amount of time. And I can talk to a jellyfish. If I close my eyes, I can even worse talk to a jellyfish. <laughs> I'm just thinking that what we need to do is think about this in more detail. You know, how would you communicate? How would you be able to actually make sense of a message? So not even the distances is what I'm worried about. But having said that, I think the search for life and the finding of life, whether it's like we're finding some gases in the air that gets breathing in and out, and even a life is simple, you know, single a cell, whatever you want. If you look at the evolution of life on our own planet, and if you take it, this 4.6 billion years as a 24-hour clock, around 3 a.m. in the morning, about 3.5 billion years ago, life started on this planet, and it started to modify the atmosphere. Around lunchtime, it modified it in a way with oxygen and methane as this telltale sign of life as we know it. So we could spot life for a long time, but you and me, and especially radio communication, were the last couple of seconds before midnight. So finding that that time, like finding an evolutionary stage of another civilization in that time would be huge because the chances that you find it in the time are low. But I think it's a huge payoff if we do. Neil Bowles, do you 
worry about the messages that humankind is already putting out there. In 100,000 years' time, intelligent life on the other side of the Milky Way might have nothing to go on about human civilization uh, more than uh, a reality TV show. What does Love Island say about humanity? I think it probably says quite a lot about humanity right now, actually. But that's a story that Love Island for the is a very interesting reality TV show on British television at the moment. I mean, I suppose yeah. it's like archaeology. Yeah, uh, you know, the is. rubbish tip uh, of, the of, can be uh, from the Middle Ages can be hugely yeah. significant. I think one of the first things to think about is that we have done this already as a, as a species. We've deliberately sent messages into space both mechanically on the things like the Voyager spacecraft and the Pioneer spacecraft that have left our solar system. And also, you know, we've transmitted radio signals deliberately. So there, I think there are very much two ways of looking at the communication. It's not really a problem, but the communication discovery, if you like. One is that you pick up what looks like gibberish type signals, you know, signals that don't really make a lot of sense to us. They're the other civilizations version of our TV broadcast so that that is their version of, you know, Love Island or, or whatever. The other is that there's a deliberately encoded signal that's been sent, probably using some very regularized mathematical method that makes it quite clear that this is an intelligent origin signal and it's designed for as a sort of discovery beacon. And that's like. what we've been sending out, is it? Well, we've done it a couple of times. There are a couple of famous examples. Like There was one when the Arecibo radio telescope, which is one of the biggest radio telescopes in the world in, in Puerto Rico, was switched on for the first time. And they, they used the sort of radar transmitter on it to send an encoded signal, which was kind of mathematically encoded in a way that if it was received, they beamed it towards like... Uh, I forget now, a big globular cluster, I think, which is a big selection of stars, you know, so that in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years' time, then somebody might receive it. You know, we have done that once or twice already. It's done occasionally. However, the other civilization would have to want to be discovered in that case. They would have to be sending something to be found. Otherwise, yes, it would just be a question of trying to discern all the information that you get from, you know, radio and TV broadcasts. And, of course, this assumes that radio and TV broadcasters, we understand them. You know, again, our cultural bias, if you like, is somewhat coming out here. Is the sort of standard way that people develop these types of technology. You know, if um, everybody suddenly switched to using cable TV, for example, where you're sending light pulses down fibre optic to people's homes and they got to that technology before they did radio transmissions, then they might never have been a radio alive civilization so for example if your atmosphere happened to be incredibly opaque to radio waves then it meant that the actual way of transmitting the signal or the building materials on your planet because of the peculiar chemistry that you have means that radio waves do not propagate everywhere you know you worry about cellular or mobile phone signal here on earth it could be there's a planet out there where it's almost impossible to actually build anything because the iron content is so high or, or whatever you, you could imagine there being a set of circumstances where you don't you know radio propagation isn't the way you do it so then you are looking at you know i mean i'm sure andrew might mention optical seti is one thing where you send pulses of light into the you know to look for beacons or it might just be that those random signals that we sort of send out into space at the moment just normally civilization just didn't go down that technological path well andrew tell us about your search because you're actively involved in a search for extraterrestrial intelligence what do you do Berkeley SETI Research Center is actually the home of the world's most comprehensive, sensitive, and intensive search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It's called Breakthrough Listen, uh, and that is the, the program that you, you mentioned was announced in 2015 there at the Royal Society in London. And basically what we do is look for electromagnetic radiation that is somehow different than the natural electromagnetic radiation that we get from 
stars and, and galaxies and, and other objects uh, in, uh, in, in the galaxy and indeed in, in the universe. Uh, most electromagnetic radiation produced by natural objects uh, is fundamentally produced by the random motions of atoms or, or molecules uh, moving in, in some thermodynamic random state. But technology is, is very, very different. It has a property that we call coherence, and it can compress electromagnetic energy in either what we call the spectral domain or the, the temporal domain. And this is very much like a, a pulse from a radar that might come from a, uh, an aircraft or the, the single radio station on the, the, the dial that you tune into with your, with your car. Most of the spectrum is static. That's the natural background. But a radio station, uh, an example of technology, can have radiation at just one frequency or one wavelength. And that's fundamentally the, the property that we search for, be it uh, in, in the radio part of the electromagnetic spectrum or in the optical uh, part of the electromagnetic spectrum, where we might be looking for something like a, a laser communication system or some kind of uh, LIDAR-like like technology. Andrew, what happens if you do intercept a signal? You're not going to go on telly and announce it, are you? Uh, well, may- maybe I'll make the announcement right here on your show. <laughs> Um, that no, would be uh, the day. It, but but what, what is the plan? You know, our most important job as, as scientists and particularly as, as observational astronomers is to, to be very, very confident in, in anything that, that we report, uh, be it on, on Twitter or in the scientific literature. So uh, when we detect signals that, that we find interesting, which, which happens uh, quite a lot actually, uh, the first thing that we do is we reobserve that particular patch of the sky in that particular part of the, the radio dial. Uh, we go back and, and we look again and we see if we still see the signal. And if the signal is very, very interesting to us, we might reobserve that patch of the sky uh, for some time. And if we redetect the signal, which, which also happens with astrophysical uh, objects, natural objects that are interesting to us, we bring other telescopes um, into the observation. So, so the first thing that I would do is I would get on the phone and I would call the, the directors of observatories uh, all over the world and, and my colleagues in the scientific community and request that they too uh, look at this particular part of the sky with, with every kind of um, telescope that, that we have available to us. Uh, and we would collect as much data a- as we possibly could. Uh, and as, as Penny alluded to, the, the scientific process is, uh, is, is a long road, and it's a, it's a meandering and, and challenging road. Uh, and even though the kinds of signals that we look for, particularly in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, are believed to be unambiguous indicators of technology, that is that that we know of no other source for the kinds of signals that we're looking for than, than technology. Surely if we were to detect uh, such a source coming from, from very far away in our, in our galaxy or in another galaxy, um, there would be a long process of, of uh, whittling down the, the possibilities for what, what might actually be able to create that. And uh, surely there would be arguments from uh, theorists that, that perhaps there was some natural, natural phenomena. So um, take a lot of data uh, and then study it uh, very, very carefully. And I think the, the process of coming to the conclusion that uh, a signal that we detect, again, even if it's very obvious, is indeed from another technology would be a, a fairly long one. You're listening to The Real Story on the BBC World Service where we're asking the question today, is there anybody out there? And can I ask you, Neil Bowles at the University of Oxford, if this is essentially 
a self-indulgent question to ask. Obviously, it has bearing on funding uh, in terms of how important this kind of research is. But is there a sense in which people should be satisfied with research into the, the endless wonders that exist on Earth and the beings that surround us here that we still don't understand and that they should be the priority? Of course, there are people out there all over the world. Of course, there are things out there. Well, first of all, I think it's worth remembering that, of course, the, the actual expenditure on this kind of work is really pretty small. And if you, of course, it's absolutely tiny if you compare it to other sorts of expenditure, like, say, defence spending around the world. But having said that, it's an absolutely key cultural question that uh, goes to absolutely every human being, I think, who's ever had a chance to wonder about their existence. So... The, 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 you know, there are two possible out- outcomes to this question. One is there's life, there's, there is life in the universe, which means that, or a sp- in our galaxy, for example, that we might be able to detect, but that would imply there was life in the universe in general, which is very exciting. And it, it sort of shows that it's, it's a process and there is, we're not unique in the universe. But of course, the other option is that we are unique in the universe, in which case that becomes an incredibly culturally demanding and important point because it shows that we have to be even more careful of ourselves and more careful of our our environment and the planet that we live on. So I think it's not at all self-indulgent to, to ask these questions and be able to approach them in a scientific manner. And I think this is the really important thing, you know, that the, the, the points made earlier, especially by, you know, Andrew, about the process you would go through about confirming the signal is incredibly important. You know, there would be this very intense period of activity where everybody tries to prove as hard as they possibly can that this is not a signal from an intelligence outside of our outside of the earth you know that would be the point the whole point would be to essentially be the ultimate skeptic and then eventually when you come down to it and this is the only outcome it would be a incredibly profound result which is why handling it will be a, a culturally important moment how would you handle it penny boston um i think that there, it's so multifaceted that I think we have to work on it from all uh, directions. And one of the directions, of course, is the esoteric philosophical meaning for us as beings in the universe. But the other end of it is, you know, it would be really helpful if we understood um, these different levels of development of other uh, biospheres. Um, Lisa was mentioning that uh, we see um, stars of all different ages and their planets are going to be all different ages. And as I look into the distant future, I see a time where we will have a statistically significant population of objects that we can compare. And just knowing about how our own biosphere is likely to develop into the future, um, are there danger signals for our species? Uh, We imagine a lot of them like blowing ourselves up with nuclear uh, war, but there may be much more subtle and complex things. And indeed, you're an an astrobiologist, but you study life on Earth in caves with a view to what that can tell us about alien life, don't you? Well, that's right. And you would think, gosh, that's a pretty far stretch. But, um, you know, the life forms that we find in caves are very different in many significant ways from the life that we're used to on the surface. Not only is it largely microbial in the caves that I study, but a lot of them live off um, uh, rock. They use inorganic reactions to produce their life energy. They're not eating food, so to speak, the way we do. And so this is a very different way that one might conceive a biosphere. Um, So this uh, comparison with Earth environments is what we have in hand. This is something that we can do. But we try to extract from that the individual lessons. We're not looking for examples of other planets right here on our own planet. But we're trying to tease out 
the little gems of wisdom about the life process. And the life process is really what um, really informs a lot of the work. Um, I was just thinking as, as other folks were talking that um, about, you know, how would we announce the first finding of intelligent life or, in fact, life in general on any other planet, that that would just be the beginning of a new clock. And that new clock is how do we then figure out what that life is like, how its history has been and what we can learn from that. So just as within every part of science, um, every new find, every magnificent discovery uh, starts a whole new clock running on interrogating that for our uh, practical benefit and for our philosophical uh, and intellectual enrichment. And Lisa, all the questions that you're constantly asking about the possibilities of life elsewhere in the universe, is it true that they start with pondering the, the meaning of life on Earth, really? I think Earth is our Rosetta Stone, just as Penny just mentioned. We're looking in all the different niches of life, and then when we look out and we find planets that, for example, our next star after the sun, Proxima Centaurus, they has a planet, Proxima Centaur, Proxima B is what we usually call it. And basically that is bombarded with a lot of UV radiation. So we look back at our own world and figure out if life can cope with it. And life has strategies to do that. And so we can envision a biosphere that could actually strive on a planet like Proxima B. It might be in the ocean. It might even, like corals do here on Earth, if hit with a lot of UV, start to biofluoresce, to actually light up. And you can see that if you go in any oceanarium. But we use all this, this earth, our own Rosetta Stone, to figure out what this new world can be like. Because you ask this fundamental question, is this an important discovery? If you put yourself far in the future and look back at human history, I think the history books will have two epochs. One, the epoch before humankind knew it was alone. And the second epoch is after. Well, we're approaching the end of our discussion of this topic here on The Real Story. And we've talked about the long game. And I want you to to look not into that frustrating many generations into the future distance, but in 10 years time. And if I can put it to each of you now, starting with you, Neil, what are the chances in a decade's time that we will have found something out there? I'm kind of optimistic i think there's a good chance for the next generation of telescopes that will be coming online so the things like the james webb space telescope um when that gets into space and starts doing its observations i think when um the th- the very large telescopes that are being built as uh, in chile and um, potentially in other parts of the world they will have the the capability to resolve much better they have much better light gravity power and much quieter environments to do very sensitive measurements so i think that looking at exoplanets i think there's a there's a moderate possibility we might see evidence for gases in planet other planets atmospheres i think the next thing to think about is mars and also the um, moons of jupiter and saturn i think in the next 10 years there will be instruments going to mars and say Europe's ExoMars rover, which include experiments for looking for life in the subsurface of Mars or markers that could indicate life. So we will be going to Mars with a sophisticated little mini laboratory and drilling into the subsurface really quite deep for the first time to extract samples and do measurements. But that then leads on to the next generation of 
robotic spacecraft which are going to go to Mars and they're going to collect samples that can then be returned to Earth. And that will then be the, the big deal. So maybe in 10 years' time we'll be on the cusp, or maybe they'll even be with us, of samples from, say, Mars that have been picked up by a robot and then returned to Earth in a, in a spacecraft. Penny, can we make great strides in one decade? Well, I think if you look back at the last number of decades, the last 50 years, within each decade, we've made major uh, advances. Some of those have been understanding planets, um, Mars among them, um, understanding other stellar systems. We are gifted by living in the age of exoplanets. And for me, it's a breathless race to figure out whether or not we're going to uh, discover some sort of life, whether intelligent or not, uh, in the exoplanet realm first or within our own solar system first. So uh, to echo uh, what has just been said, we clearly are moving forward to explore our own uh, planetary environment here in our solar system with missions that are being proposed, missions that are being funded, that we're going to see from NASA, from ESA, from all around the world. And so that's very exciting. Um, I plan to, on a personal level, try to remain as healthy as possible so I can live as long as possible because I'll be very upset if I don't make it long enough to see um, some significant advances. So for me, a decade is a lovely timeline. And I, I am also quite optimistic. Lisa, what are you staying healthy for? I think this is the interdisciplinary international science adventure of humankind and it's the science adventure of a lifetime. And we are just at the stage where if life exists everywhere it can, we don't know that yet, and if it leaves signs, unique signs in the atmosphere like we do, oxygen and methane in combination, then within the next decade, we can find it. And that's profoundly going to change my view of the night sky because right now I hope that there's life out there. But I think going out for a picnic under the night stars, so look up at night place today and just imagine in a decade from now, you could point at the star at one of those other suns and know that there's something breathing and maybe even looking at you right now. Thank you. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you to all our guests, Penny Boston, Neil Bowles, Lisa Kaltenegger and Andrew Simeon. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back anytime online by searching for BBC The Real Story. And if you liked this week's programme, make sure you never miss another edition and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us simply by searching for The Real Story in your podcast app. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, Paul Henley, and the team, that was The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.